0: EM Board Bombs Now, here's Doctors Iltafat Hussain and Blake Briggs.
1: Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast where we try to make board studying a little bit more different and enjoyable. I am Dr. Al Fatih Hussein, joined by Dr. Blake Briggs. It's good to be back, Blake. Good to have you it's back, good be sir. Back. Good to have you back, sir. How was your yeah. How was your book tour? Uh, book tour was good. Uh, COVID kind of slowed things down, so the uh, you know I'd like to think that people did not show up for the signings because <laughs> of the quarantine orders in place. That's what my publisher was telling me, um, and I'm gonna go with that. I'm going to go with that. I don't think it was because people were not interested to hear why a physician might write a book about coffee and deep dives into that. It it might. I don't think it was that. No, Uh, of course not. No, right. That's, you know, I'm glad that my residents agree. My med students agree. My fellow faculty don't necessarily agree, (laughs) but I, you know, why, why would you guys not tell me the truth? (laughs) Hey, sign up on our website for free updates and episodes, printed handouts, free review quizzes, emboardbombs.com. Check it out. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at emboardbombs. Dr. Briggs, let's get into this topic. Let's do it. Send it. (laughs) Send it. (laughs) Do it live. A 45-year-old male is watching Harold and Kumar, the famous 2004 film that is described by Wikipedia as a, quote, stoner comedy. What does that mean? uh, I I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Unfortunately, instead of being inspired by Harold and Kumar, he's inspired by the breakout cameo performance of Neil Patrick Harris, <laughs> also known as NPH. Unfortunately, the patient decides to recreate a particular harrowing scene involving cocaine in the movie. The details of the scene are unseemly for our highbrow podcast, so we're not gonna get into it. Very highbrow. Very highbrow. Needless to say. After intake of copious amounts of cocaine, the patient presents to you with altered mental status, an EMS stating that before things worsened, the patient kept yelling about a bad headache and something to do with his favorite actor, NPH. Hmm. Which of the following is true in terms of diagnostic workup? A, LP is highly specific for the diagnosis. B, a normal CT head performed less than six hours after symptoms onset rules out the diagnosis. C, the most sensitive test is a CT angiogram. D RBC counts that decrease from tubes one to four is specific for traumatic tap. What's the correct answer, Doctor Briggs? Ooh, these are some tough ones.
0: Yeah, I would know because I wrote them. Correct answer <laughs> here is going to be B. A normal head CT performed less than six hours after symptom onset rules out the diagnosis. What is the diagnosis uh, today? Yes, this
1: is this is very sexy. This whole CT less than six hours. I know. So I'm glad we're doing it. The diagnosis is subarachnoid hemorrhage. Bam bam
0: goes the thunderclap
1: it's a a good one it's one that we've seen some movement in terms of clinical management in the last few years
0: subarachnoid hemorrhage is terrifying it's a actually relatively frequent cause of intracranial bleeding uh high morbidity mortality Guess what percentage subarachnoid makes up for total strokes?
1: You know, you would think that it would be a small amount. <laughs> exactly. You kind of alluded to the fact that it's a high frequent cause of bleeding, right? But you're, you're talking about a, almost 10%. Frightening. Right? And they can be aneurysmal, which are more common, which is why oftentimes when someone comes in, the subarachnoid hemorrhage diagnosed just on a non-contrast, oftentimes neurosurgery wants that CTA to be done. Um, or obviously it can be non-aneurysmal as well. Mm-hmm. And
0: we're talking aneurysms we're talking, you know, there's different types, but in general, the classic med school buzz term is a saccular or berry aneurysm. And in general, you know, just as a brief primer here, remember that uh, an aneurysm is a, some protrusion from the artery due to a weak, defected elastic lamina. Non-aneurysmal causes, of course, most commonly worldwide would be trauma. We see quite a bit of these, actually. In fact, it's the most common head bleed associated with traumatic events is a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And of course, we also have AV malformations, vasculitis, amyloid, and uh, sympathomimetic abuse, like our poor patient here in this case, cocaine abuse.
1: So let's you know talk about some of the biggest risk factors, so, though, for yeah, aneurysm yeah. formation and subarachnoid in general.
0: If you had to pick two of the biggest risk factors on a test question, they're never going to put both of these together, but it'll be smoking and hypertension. Both are incredibly high risk. Third on the list would be family history. This is where it gets kind of frightening in terms of family stuff. So they're going to be like specific uh, either family genetic disorders like traits or like Erlos Danielos or polycystic kidney disease. In general, other family members have a fivefold risk of a subarachnoid hemorrhage compared to the rest of the population.
1: Yeah. And remember, the risk at baseline for the population yes, is Yes, of low. course. But still, fivefold is tremendously oh, it's huge. more, which is why, you know, Dr. Briggs mentioned it, because it's important to ask that family.
0: And speaking of that, as disturbing as we've said this to everybody already, it sounds like we're talking about uh, a horrible thing, which it is. Thankfully, most aneurysms don't rupture. Uh, the lifetime prevalence, about 5% of the population in the United States has an aneurysm, probably undiagnosed, and they're found on autopsy just there. Uh, so the vast majority are in the anterior circulation by the circle willis, and they usually just remain asymptomatic most of their life. However, sometimes unruptured aneurysms can cause headaches, and these headaches can mimic subarachnoid symptoms. Now, you're going to work them up the same way, of course. So there's this big academic discussion about what to do with aneurysms in the neurosurgery world in terms of operations or not, if they're unruptured and whether or not they're symptomatic or not. None of that matters for an emergency physician. No, if we no. see a patient that comes in symptomatic and we see a CT scan that shows an aneurysm, no matter what the size, you're going to be calling you're a neurosurgeon. Uh, that's the end of story for us in that case. Does that make sense? Done. Yes. So the pathophysiology here, we're going to have the rupture of some blood vessel due to an aneurysm or non-aneurysmal cause. Blood rapidly enters the CSF, and there's a rapid increase in intracranial pressure with symptoms of an intense headache. And then, of course, just like our patient, worsening neurological status, worsening mental status with uh, quick decline. Dr. Hussain, um, would you say headache is a presenting symptom? Yes. <laughs> This is that
1: classic question we ask patients, sudden, severe headache. Thunderclap. Talk about thunderclap. And you're talking about 97% of the cases they present like this. Location doesn't matter. Nausea vomiting, very common with this. And oftentimes what will trip you up is the patient's chief complaint will be nausea vomiting. But when you dive into it some more, they'll say a headache started out first. Uh, That's an important pearl that I do like to throw out to residents and med students. When it comes to the severe headache, I know what everyone who's experienced, who's listening to this, is doing right now. They're rolling their eyes at me <laughs> because they're saying, "Yeah, Hussein, every headache is sudden, severe, and the worst of their life, right?" And that, that just, <laughs> why do you think they? Why do you think they of, came to the ER? <laughs> why do you think they came to the ER? So you do have to finesse this a bit when you ask this question and. It honestly just takes experience uh, to really ask oh this god. question the right way. That is way. such an attending um, answer, and 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 I'm not going to get into the details of that. Oh again, my god! Because again, how many times I would say majority of time when you ask patients, "Is this your worst headache?" or ask it in that way, they're going to say, "Yeah, that's why I'm here." Half the half these patients present with syncope. Oh my god! Such an attending answer. I know, I know. Seizures are another part of this. You're talking about around 10% of these patients. And this can be one of the most concerning symptoms if it presents early. Unfortunately, when it comes to sudden death, uh, you know, 10 to 15% of these patients present in that manner as well. And by sudden death,
0: we mean what? Asystole. Yeah, absolutely. Just remember that you know when patients come in post CPR, this could be a cause of their untimely demise. Uh, you know we're always concerned about heart attacks, and that's right, but this can be uh, a cause as well. You know another thing when it comes to headache, Doctor Hussain, saying just to mention it would be the case of asking it in terms of comparing to other headaches. I usually like to ask my patients, um, "How's this headache compared to other headaches you've had in the past?" And that's a kind of a good way. You're not leading them on saying, "Is this the worst headache you've ever had?" Or you know, saying judging their severity on a, a ten-point scale, which is always subjective, uh, I feel like sometimes it adds a little bit more qualif- qualifying statements. But you're but you're right; experience For does sure. play a big role in what you've seen sure. in the past.
1: Right, and you're finessing it a nice way, which is nice. You know, sometimes I will use a non finesse manner of saying, "Hey, does this feel like someone was just squeezing your head, or does it feel like someone took a hammer and hit you in the head?" <laughs> And then I just pause.
0: And they look at you. (laughs) Moving on, though. (laughs) So EKGs, I want to mention EKGs only because of many various EKG blogs that mention this finding, but any type of head bleed, you can see ischemic changes such as ST depression, most notably really deep, deep, deep T-wave inversions in the precordial leads. I'm only mentioning this just because this is high yield for boards, but of course, it does not tell you, oh, they have a head bleed. But it's, anytime you see really deep scalloped T wave inversions yeah. and they have a headache, right. you need to be really concerned about any type of intracranial bleeding. Yeah. And remember, lab work's not helpful here. When is it, really? Let's talk. I know.
1: I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Only to reassure yeah. you. That's pretty much it. But when it comes to diagnosing this, and we're going to run this through, it's, you know, what's the first test you're getting? Um,
0: head CT without contrast.
1: Yes. How many times are you finding blood? In the subarachnoid space,
0: really good. Um, so, greater than ninety percent of the time, if the scan is less than twenty four hours. Now, greater than ninety percent is not one hundred percent. However, here is the coolest thing of the day. Cool, I love this stat. If you do a head CT, right, according to a recent study they did about a few years ago, and that head CT is done less than six hours of headache onset, the sensitivity is virtually one hundred percent. So, if a patient's symptoms truly began less than six hours prior, and they should know it, right, if it's a severe thunderclap onset headache, right? and the CT scan is negative, your subarachnoid workup is complete, and there's no further diagnostic workup warranted.
1: And I think the other thing is operators, while well, the person reading expert the Expert radiologist. Imaging, uh,
0: that's yeah. exactly. Not a PGY2. Ex- expert radiologist. The critical caveat here we have to mention is that the CT scanner is a generation 7, a Gen 7 latest model i feel like i'm talking about a terminator now of course i'm a terminator and my programming is infallible
1: <laughs> uh, the boy. ct 700 I, I don't even know what to say i saw the, the most recent terminator is actually actually fantastic it it's was good, better than the previous one right uh, previous few but i like it that's that's honestly the biggest takeaway from this podcast is going to be what dr briggs just mentioned because what that does is it really helps avoid the need for what? Kind of the next thing we're getting into, lumbar puncture.
0: The puncture um, of the lumbar spine.
1: For boards, you need to know when it should
0: be performed, though. Um, it's easy to kind of say when mm-hmm. it shouldn't, but when should this be performed? You're going to perform this test if you have a negative head CT and the patient presents greater than six hours with a concerning story. So what we just said a minute ago, if that patient's outside the six-hour range, you need to do further tests because the CT head is no longer virtually diagnostic. So you have to do a more sensitive test, which is a lumbar puncture. Right. And let's make this clear,
1: a lot of times people are doing shared decision mm-hmm. making. They're doing other sure, types sure. of things. We're not boards are not going to be talking about decision shared decision making. Yeah, you're doing, doing that, it. Right. Yeah. Where you're just you're doing the LP. And even on oral boards, sure. you're doing
0: the LP. Um but continue. Yeah, you could find an elevated opening pressure on LP, but that's not diagnostic. I'm just letting you know that it's there. Other things that cause elevated opening pressure that are uh, that have patients present with headache and mental status changes would be like HSV encephalitis. And another finding you're going to see on LP that is diagnostic here is going to be the RBC count, which is normally extremely high, greater than 2,000, and xanthochromia. One note about the RBC count, which is one of the answer choices. I see a lot of people bring this up at work, which is them saying that an elevated RBC count that decreases from tube one to four means that it was a traumatic tap. That's not true. It, it makes it more likely that it could be a traumatic tap. However, if you have you know ten thousand RBCs in tube one and four thousand RBCs in tube four, that <laughs> that doesn't mean it's yeah, a, <laughs> lot. a lot for a traumatic tap. Maybe if you that's maybe a if you uh, traumatic tapped the aorta, but. <laughs> But anyway, but you should always have a high index of suspicion. So you can't just blame the non-traumatic taps. I'm just letting you know. Now to talk about the more important thing, the xanthochromia. This is a yellow tint, obviously, from hemoglobin breakdown in the CSF. It's the most specific finding. And in the setting of a severe headache, it is virtually diagnostic of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. If you're unsure if it's xanthochromia, the best thing is to hold the vial of CSF to a vial of tap water next to it. Uh, against a white background, and they should clearly be different. Uh, Xanthochromia, here's a caveat here, though. Xanthochromia is rarely found less than two hours after symptom onset, right, because the RBCs haven't broken down. The reason this isn't that big of a deal, in my opinion, is that if the patient's less than two hours of symptom onset, you're doing the head CT and you're done with the workup, right? Yeah. And I thought you were going to say the reason why this isn't that big of a deal
1: is because you might see this Less than one time in your career. That too. But it is absolutely critical, critical to know this, not only for that one time you might see it, but also for the boards.
0: So the absence of RBCs, if you have no RBCs in the final LP tube, and you have no xanthochromia greater than two hours after symptom onset, you've ruled out subarachnoid. And your sensitivity is what magic number?
1: 100%.
0: Hundo. (laughs) (laughs) The negative predictive value is 100%, which is incredible. The sensitivity is 100%. And the specificity, as you'd imagine, right? It's not really telling you the subarachnoid. It's just strong suggestions. So the specificity is only 65%, which means choice A was wrong, saying that LP is highly specific for the diagnosis. It's not. We're using it to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. So let's say that the patient refuses an LP. What is another testing option we have now that's, that's actually just as good probably nowadays? CTA and MRI. Oh, yeah. Huge. 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 Big big changes here. So these CTAs, in pretty much its advanced phase of getting really, really good in terms of new multi-detector 64-slice CTAs, they have greater than 97% sensitivity and specificity for subarachnoid hemorrhage. MRI and CTA are pretty much equal. They can detect aneurysms. That are three to five millimeters or larger, which is really good, you know, and then it gets into discussion, which we're not here to tell you which is, you know, which to do. But in general, this is one of those topics of, Hey, what are the drawbacks of both? You know, the CTA is going to be cost and radiation. The LP is cheaper, but you know, it's painful, time consuming, not without its own risks. So this is something just to keep in mind that LP is still the most sensitive test. It is the test you do on the oral boards. However, in terms of real life and in terms of your board questions on your written exam the cta and lp are, are very good they're both good tests to rule out definitive subarachnoid hemorrhage
1: right so what are you doing after you make that diagnosis yeah
0: so what we're doing here is blood pressure control the guidelines aren't really clear on this don't let any uh neurologist or neurosurgeon tell you otherwise <laughs> these, these guidelines change i swear don't these guidelines change when you talk to them i think it just changes who you talk. talking that's what i'm saying that's what i'm saying anybody you talk to like it's it's yeah. just it's up in the air it, from what i've right, seen right, i did right. a deep dive here deep dive mm. i even went to the future and came back and the guidelines still haven't been clear <laughs> in general the goal of systolic blood pressure is less than 160 that's a reasonable number dr saying, would you would you say that's pretty consistent with what you've seen probably yeah 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 i mean really it's get the blood pressure yeah. lower that's you know. here's some interesting stuff we gotta go to nerd time you want to do nerd time where's the music cue, cue it, it. All right, so here's the interesting thing. So besides the agents we're preferring, which would be like labetalol, or if you want to do more drip-wise, that would be nicardipine or clavidipine, the benefit of lowering blood pressure has to be offset by the risk of infarction. So the equation for cerebral perfusion pressure, which is CPP equals mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure. We can have that on our website for you to look at. And basically that means if your ICP is high, really high, then the only thing that is maintaining cerebral perfusion is the mean arterial pressure. Meaning if you drop their blood pressure and they already have a high intracranial pressure, then you could actually harm them more. So you don't want to have this patient go all the way, you know, drop them to 100 from like 180. That's very dangerous. So actually you should be using the patient's consciousness as a helpful marker. So if the patient's like alert and oriented and they're talking to you, but they have a severe headache and they have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, your blood pressure goal should be around 140, right? Because you can target a lower blood pressure because their intracranial pressure theoretically would be a little bit lower because they're alert and oriented, right? If they're impaired consciousness, you don't want to drop the blood pressure too much because you're going to harm cerebral perfusion. Your blood pressure target should be 160. That's pretty cool stuff. What do you think about that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, thanks. So Uh. here's another hotly debated thing, (laughs) seizure management. this changes a lot i was trying to think of a an, an analogy yeah. i can't even think of one right now but
1: but i think the the best part of this at least for the board <laughs> not on the boards what you really found is just it's don't not, worry
0: about it it's not it. on the <laughs> boards yeah don't worry about that we're just letting you know it's that just, no one really knows the yeah. answer to this yeah exactly. um but, unfortunately we have to say one thing on this podcast we're gonna hate to say it you ready mm, ready this is the one time ever we're gonna say you have to use normal saline oh man yeah could you prepare were you like gripping the chair you're like oh, oh here we go yeah
1: no, I, um, I knew that this might get mentioned and I practiced some breathing techniques <laughs> beforehand, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't get yeah. too upset. Okay. So I'm doing fine. Okay. I'm just focusing on my breathing. <laughs> I'm going to mute myself while I
0: let out a yell. <laughs> so hypodatremia is likely due to hypothalamic <laughs> injury. You need to target euvolemia in these patients. Uh, need to be really good about maintaining normal thermia, euvolemia. So, unfortunately, we need to do isotonic saline as a crystalloid of choice. So, this is the only time we ever support the use of normal saline. Otherwise, it's... Yeah, only only time we support the use of something that might kill your kidneys. <laughs> In this case, though, the kidneys are the <laughs> least of your problems. <laughs> hey, where are we admitting these patients, even if they're sitting up and talking to you? I see you, I Great. see you, I see you.
1: Oh, gosh. And as I said that, my cereal <laughs> activated as well. I don't know why. <laughs> I, how, hey, how soon are we innovating these things? Uh, we're
0: doing this pretty early. Um, so not just GCS less than eight, but we need to be watching for patients that uh, for better critical care monitoring, right, right? For sure. So patients that we're worried about uh, blood pressure control, in and out of consciousness kind of thing, um, seizures, we just go and debate these patients. They have a long course ahead of them. 35% of patients have worsening neurofunctioning after admission. That's insane. Right. The definitive management, of course, from the neurosurgery side, just to mention, you know, with their end result here, if they do find an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, they're going to have surgical clipping or some type of endovascular coiling. Overall, the complications are pretty bad. The mortality rate is what? (laughs) Depressing? (laughs) It's like fifty-one percent. Yeah, the majority die within thirty days. It's horrible. I know, and and, and not all these
1: c- folks are even candidates for no, and whatnot. And it's just it's a it's a really awful thing. I think the biggest thing that we can do is EM providers is really trying to make that diagnosis as quickly as possible. Yes, without sending the patient without sending the patient home with the migraine
0: <laughs> cocktail, which is I think every EM providers fear with this, right? Because it's hard. It really is. Yeah, it's for sure. The biggest complication is going to be re-bleeding. That happens within the first 24 hours, typically. Um, other complications will be hydrocephalus, caused by obstruction of CSF by blood products. They might need a drain placement, surgery will take care of that. And then vasospasm. This is a classic board question. Um, since medical school, boards have been asking about vasospasm associated with subarachnoid hemorrhage. We still don't know much about it. It's some type of inflammatory complication where there's like lysis of clots, endothelial damage, and then some ischemic vasospasm, which further worsens neurologic decline and there's high mortality. In general, these patients present with worsening neurologic decline, loss of consciousness. Again, this stuff doesn't really affect us, to be honest, because these patients are up in the ICU. You know, we have to know this because the boards will ask us. So the prevention here is that all patients should receive nimodipine. Uh, as well as statins, interesting enough, but more so than nimodipine. Nimodipine, which is a calcium channel blocker, improves outcomes from potential vasopaspasm. The bottom line is if you have a neurological patient that has a known stroke or subarachnoid, any change in clinical status warrants a stat head ct immediately. The most important part about prognosis, Dr. saying can you summarize that for us?
1: Yeah, really, when it comes to prognosis, as we mentioned, overall, just, it's not good. But it's <laughs> their, you know, are they conscious or not? What's the neuro exam initially? The younger they are, the better. And the amount of blood that you're seeing on the CT. Um, and it, you know the sad part, further sad part of all this is if you've had a you know a subarachnoid hemorrhage, there's a chance of a recurrence as well, despite
0: you know mm-hmm. successful repair. Hey, let's take us out, man. I'm a little disappointed you didn't laugh at my Terminator joke earlier when I said Gen Seven. <laughs> <laughs> um, another board bomb delivered.
1: Remember, you can find us on Twitter at EM board Bombs. Find us on Instagram as well at, at EM board Bombs. Drops an Apple review. For sure. really like those. Hey, thanks uh, in particular for the feedback we got on COVID and some of the Apple reviews we got on that. Thank you guys. We'll do an update. And guess what?
0: Next time, in the words of Arnold, we'll be back. Yeah, we go. <laughs> See you guys.